Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So the uh, title of this talk is, What Do They Really Think About Me? As I said, I just finished um, teaching the annual uh, February month-long at Spirit Rock. And uh, sitting on the retreat is a young woman who's become a a good friend um, from Finland. Her her name is Priska, Priska Penanen. And Priska, if you're listening to this, hello. Um, so Priska and I, we, I've, Jane and I have gone to Finland and, uh, and we'll be going again this year and we've gotten to know um, some really wonderful Finnish uh, practitioners and, and uh, I've gotten to know Priska over the last year a couple of years and um when she's come to the uh, to sit um she sat a couple of retreats at spirit rock and she just did the month long she stays with us for a few days before and a few days after uh, and she's really a, a delight and uh, we have some um really uh, great conversations and um we were talking the other day, she just uh, flew back yesterday to Helsinki, and um, she was saying how her um, her friend uh, had written to her that she was going to be coming to Helsinki uh, this summer and was hoping to visit with her. And Priska realized the dates that she gave. Priska is going to be on another retreat. And this has happened at least once, maybe a couple of times before. And this friend is not a Dharma practitioner. So her first thought was, oh, she's going to be saying, there you are again, doing that again? You know, and um, doing another retreat? And Priska got a little bit uncomfortable thinking, oh, you know, what's she going to be thinking about me? And all this uh, concern, oh, she's going to feel like I've, I'm joining a cult and uh, you know, that I didn't get it before. By the way, this reminds me, the, the first time I did a, a long retreat, a three-month, there's a three-month retreat every fall. And the first time I did a three-month retreat, my uh, my parents, uh, I was, how old at the time? I was 20, uh, 28 at the time. My parents thought, oh my God, I can't believe, what are you doing? That was bad enough. But the second time I went, 
They said, didn't you get it the last time? <clears throat> it took them a while to finally see, oh, this, maybe he's, maybe something good is happening and maybe he's getting a little bit chill. And, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, I know that thought where uh, you're thinking, what are they going to, what are they going to think? Another retreat. But then she, it made her think of a thought that she used to have when she was a, a young girl, 10 or 12 years old. <coughs> Excuse me. Where she imagined, um, wouldn't it be great if somehow everybody that she was around had a little banner on their forehead that, on other people's foreheads, not hers, showing what they were really thinking about her. (laughs) And then she realized, well, that might not be such a good idea uh, if they really showed what they were thinking about her. Because in her projection, it was either going to be relief or complete paranoia um, but there she was, thinking sure that everybody around was having an opinion about her. Do you ever have that feeling? You just know that everybody is giving you a report card, whether you're a jerk, okay, loser, uh, intelligent, competition, admiration. It's an awful lot about me, isn't it? So as she was getting in touch with these feelings that are so human of self-consciousness and projecting what somebody else is going to think, as we were talking a bit more, it just occurred to me to just uh, pose the hypothesis and I asked her to imagine what if you didn't care what they thought? How would it feel to not care at all what they, whoever they are, whether it's her friend and coming in the summer or everybody who you wonder what the banner would say if, they, if, if it was seen. What if you didn't care? What would that be like? And as we both went inside, and she just imagined not caring. And she said, you know, quite spontaneously with a lot of Mm, energy. Oh, that would be so freeing. Which I agreed. And um, then I shared with her uh, about this process that I've gone through in my life. I still care at times, but very different than when my whole life revolved around K. 
caring what everybody thought about me. Because I was sure that wherever I was, they were thinking about me. <clears throat> and it wasn't a pretty picture. <clears throat> and it's taken me a while, but over these years of practice, um, it's not that big a deal. Uh, it's not bigger than just what it is. And of course, sometimes people have their opinions about everything, uh, including you. But there's no way you're going to stop that. But if you are continually vigilant and wondering, usually the worst, how you're coming off, it is so constricting. And as I say, it can come up in certain situations, but uh, it's, it's so freeing not to have that be the, the dominant reality or theme that you're, uh, that you're working with. And I was thinking about some uh, some times when when it comes up, and I said, you know, because I wanted to be just, you know, really honest, and and I said, well, you know, like we, I just finished teaching this month long, and uh, I said probably one time that it can come up is when I'm teaching with my dear friends who I've taught with for decades now, um, Sally Clough Armstrong, Guy Armstrong, Carol Wilson, we all teach the February retreat together. And um, the one, one time it can come up is when I'm giving a talk and I know they've heard this talk before and whatever story a few times before, more than a few times, and there's a thought, oh God, Will will they be saying, "Oh, here he goes again"? You know, um, that's when it can come up. But then, you know, there I am, supposed to give a talk, so you can't let it get in the way. Uh, and she said, "Well, do you get that with uh, with yogis who might have heard your talks before?" Um, you know, I try to spruce it up a little bit. Um, I give a new talk here each week, so it's not like I'm completely, you know, just doing the cue card bit. Uh, but on retreats, there are certain things that I do want to communicate, uh, and I only get a few shots, so I, I tend to give out of about mm, uh, a dozen or so, 15 talks. There are some that I... Uh, that's my repertoire of, I want to make sure this gets in. And there's always new, exp- uh, new students and people who've done the retreat many times. And I, and I shared with her, well, you know, actually when I'm, when I'm giving a talk for the yogi's benefit, what I do is always uh, speak to about four or five people in the audience who I know it's going to be new for and that I really want to communicate. And that's the kind of vehicle. Because if I look at the person who's heard this talk many times before, instant 
deadly, right? Um, so that makes it fresh. But anyway, I can see, yeah, that can be a little, uh, being around my colleagues can sometimes uh, do that. So I was saying that, um, and she, Priska's 25, uh, and, and a very wise uh, young woman. Um, and she's just been on this path of seeing more and more just how the mind can create its prison and how it can be free. Very wise. Uh, and I, uh, but she sees all of her patterns in her mind. And I, we just talked about the process of the possibility of change. And that uh, I started to, I, I shared with her something that I, I write about in, uh, in the book, Awakening Joy. That I was so self-conscious growing up. Looking in the mirror was really painful for me. And I, I've shared this, so if those people who have heard this before, uh, I'm not talking to you, I'm, I'm talking to people who haven't heard it before. Um, and I, um, uh, I had this, uh, this epiphany when I was about 20, uh, 21, 22, that... Um, I would be going into new encounters. This is not with my good friends, but, uh, but new encounters and assuming that people, uh, especially girls, uh, which is what we called them in those days. Um, I would never call a female a girl now, but um, when I was in my 18, 19, 20 years, um, I uh, was thinking, oh, they'll think I'm boring, and they're and I'm, and not just not just girls, but um, but new people, and I'm not really going to be uh, interesting to be around, and I'm not particularly lovable. That was the story I had going for myself. <clears throat> A fun place to live from. Uh, <clears throat> And then on this epiphany, I realized that I was uh, creating this reality. You know, we, are, we live in our self-created reality. And it occurred to me in a very powerful moment how um, if that's the reality that I was holding, that's the reality I was creating and that's the energy I would be putting out. So I wasn't going to get to be prom king that way. Uh, I was just going to be somebody who was kind of shy and anxious and not feeling very good about themselves and maybe elicit some compassion for, uh, for, uh, on, on someone else's part, but certainly not, oh, it's so cool hanging out with you. So... Um, I realized, well, if that's my self-created reality, what if I just imagined, I just pretended, I just acted as if I were lovable, as if it was enjoyable 
to hang out with me. And in this, it was a very powerful uh, uh, um, revelation. So it was in my consciousness, and I said, I am going to try this experiment for one week. I will act as if I'm interesting and lovable. And lo and behold, even just pretending, I became more interesting and lovable. I don't know if I was more lovable, but at least uh, there wasn't this sense of, am I not enough? And uh, it just kept on confirming, even though it was pretending, um, there's a, a, a line by Napoleon Hill who wrote this book, great book, Think and Grow Rich. He says, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. So that one-week experiment has been going on for 46 years now. And it wasn't that all of a sudden I switched on a new way and never to return to the old way. Because those patterns are, um, have been practiced, were practiced for my first 21, 22 years. So it was a bit much to expect all of a sudden that it's all going to change. But what did, uh, what was clear to me was that this was a self fulfilling prophecy either way. And that if I could uh, more and more not just pretend, but somehow embody that understanding, uh, that I could maybe more and more live from that place. And this was um, a few years before I got into, um, into Dharma practice. And when I found the Dharma and found a way to practice looking at those habits of mind, uh, then that was a whole other level of possibility because I saw, oh, it is really possible to train the mind. And I say that because I um, have seen the power of just even imagining a certain reality that you're not quite living from, but just trying on. So you might try on what it's like, what would it be like if you were the Buddha or if you were Kuan Yin embodied. And one reflection you might have is that you really are the Buddha, you just don't know it. That's what basically the Buddha was pointing to, that when you take refuge in the Buddha, you're taking refuge in that seed of awakening, that heart of awakening that's right inside of you, and you're just uh, more and more seeing through the obscurations that are clouding this pure heart and mind that is your true nature. So you might... Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, with the expression "fake it until you make it." Uh, it. It's something like that. And now the thought can come: Oh well, um, 
gosh, that's not being very authentic. And that is a, a legitimate concern, you know, because it's not that you want to be a phony throughout your life, but there is a value to trying on another perspective, particularly if the perspective that you've been wearing is just this self-imposed prison that the mind has just practiced inclining towards. And the, the Buddha has a very famous line that I have mentioned here a number of times in, um, from the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta number 19, where he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So if you practice a certain perspective, a certain way of seeing things, you start inclining the mind more and more in that direction. And this works, if you're familiar with modern neuroscience, as far as setting up new neural pathways in your brain, instead of falling into the same rut or ruts that your mind has created that don't serve you, you can uh, find a new groove, get a little groovier in your life, and start to incline your mind to see things in a different way. So this is not to pretend or deny that you don't have those thought patterns, but it's to, um, when you start holding them in a different way, when you see, oh, this is just the mind that's created this reality, um, you're not denying those thought patterns, you're just getting some more space around them and not identifying with them as being the truth. And that pretending, acting as if, can, be, um, can just bring another dimension to your reality. So, how is this possible to do? I thought I'd share with you um, a few incentives to have this other perspective in the answer to what do they really think about me, to somehow learn to not care, or at least not be run by that thought. Now certainly, it is important to care to some extent what people think about you. Otherwise, we'd be doing all sorts of crazy things that would get us locked up, in trouble, on the front page of the newspaper, or um, be um, uh, ostracized or shunned. So there are certain rules of society that you want to know how to play the game. I'm not talking about being completely a sociopath or psychotic here. I'm talking about the extra stuff that the mind says, I'm not good enough, basically. Okay, so we've got that as the, 
the basic ground rule. Which means that uh, the Buddha's suggestion on um, uh, not causing harm or suffering is really the container that, that holds this, not causing intentionally harm to others or yourself. That sila, or keeping um, ethical guidelines, is a safe protection and place to come from. Um, but given that, how to experiment with this not caring in a destructive way. The, uh, I'm just thinking now of the T.S. Eliot line from, uh, I think it's Four Quartets, where he says, teach me to care and not to care. It's both of those where you care about acting skillfully, but you don't care about what others think. That's one dimension that you can take that line. Another is to care deeply about life and yet to bring a a spirit of equanimity to the way things are. But how to learn more the not caring part? Because usually people are more inclined on the caring too much part in this setting. So here's a, a few Uh, tips that have come to my mind and maybe we can explore this together. Mm -hmm. So one is if you know that you're coming from a good place, if you know that you're basically acting with integrity and coming from a good heart, then just being who you are is really enough. If you know where you're coming from and why you're coming from this place, whatever you do, and sometimes it can mean doing some very courageous, um, against-the-stream kind of actions, If you stay connected to your sincere motivation, that's your real protection. As I've mentioned, that's the Dalai Lama's uh, bottom line. My sincere motivation is my protection, is my great protection, he's said. So that's one, to, to really stay connected to yourself, why you're doing what you're doing, and being aligned with your values and just letting it come out in that natural way. Two, you're not going to get rid of the judgments or the tapes. It's just a practice in not believing them. And as an analogy that I've used for many years, do you remember the first time you heard a recording of your voice? Do you remember that? If you're like most people, well, certainly if you're like me, it was humbling. 
Oh my God, do I really sound like that? How many people have had that experience? Oh, you're not alone. I'm not alone. Yeah. I mean, the first time I remember it was like, you know, one of those uh, uh, reel to reel. Remember, it was a Revere tape recorder. It was the most exciting thing. I remember when my family got a Revere tape recorder, those big reel to reel, and they'd, and there would be, you could record your own voice. I wanted to send the thing back right after we got it. I said, no, that can't be. There must be some mistake here. I couldn't believe it. And after all these years giving Dharma talks, it's still not fun to hear my voice. Um, but I had a choice here. And there, was, there were these thoughts, and maybe you, all the people who raised your hand have had these thoughts too. I'm never going to open up my mouth again. <laughs> How could people stand it if they hear what I hear? But then it crossed my mind, well, they haven't walked away my whole life, so it must have been okay for them. I'm the only one that is horrified by the sound of my voice. And it's been a real, especially hearing, oh, it's posted on Dharma Seed Tape Library. What are you going to do? And at some point, it's been a practice in itself to just not believe my own assessment of how I sound. This has been both one of the most humbling and one of the most liberating practices. If I don't open my mouth, they're not going to hear anything, so I might as well just go ahead and hold my nose and dive in so it's not getting rid of those judgments or those tapes. It's just learning to not believe them. This is where the real freedom lies. So that's the second one. One, if you know you're coming from a good place, connected place. Two, those tapes, those judgments will come and just realizing it's just the mind creating a story about it. Three, particularly in relationship to what we might think others are thinking. And that is not buying in to the projections and realizing most of the time we're having projections about what others are thinking. On retreat, this is very, very apparent you go into the dining room particularly, you sit at a table with five or six other people, all in silence, and you are absolutely positive that uh, everybody is commenting about you. Until you realize that everybody else on the table is having the same thought, or many of them, they're all wondering what people are thinking about them. So how can they all be thinking about you when they're busy thinking about themselves? Right? Because we are the star of our movie, right? And often it's a melodrama or a horror show. You know? <laughs> but we're still the star. 
And it's not about you much of the time. But maybe sometimes it is. You know, you drop your fork, you know, or you have a whole pile of food on your plate and you don't know how it got there, you know. <laughs> and maybe there might be a thought about you. You don't know. One way or another, you don't know. But you are, once again, living in the prison of your mind. And we can so often flip into assuming we know what someone is thinking, or even if they are thinking what you're most afraid of them thinking, who cares? Often, it's people that you'll never see again. There you are, for instance, on a train, and you have a, a rip in your, in your pants. Actually, now that's the vogue. That's the trend to have a rip in your pants. So that's not such a good uh, example. Uh, you, uh, you have a big zit on your face. Okay. And maybe you'll see them for a few stations and then they're gone. But you know or think that everybody is thinking that about you. Oh my God, look at that zit, right? (laughs) And maybe some of them even are. But you're never going to see them again. And this brings me to a story. I don't think I've told it here in a long time. (laughs) If I have, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to the others. Uh, A very um, watershed... uh, insight when I was in my uh, 20s when I, uh, I, w- I had been teaching school um, each year uh, and I would go to Europe each, each summer on my summer vacation uh, and travel by myself to a new, new place <clears throat> other than England I always went to England and I always went to Denmark because those were two just cool countries um, but I went one summer, I went to um, Sweden. And um, it was the era of um, disco, right? And um, I was kind of, I wasn't quite the disco looking type. Uh, <laughs> you know, I couldn't pass for John Travolta, you know, it wasn't like that kind of thing. I had long hair and a beard, and uh, wore kind of like uh, uh, pseudo-hippie clothes, right? And I wasn't clear on the concept of what you're supposed to, how you're supposed to go to a disco, especially Swedish disco, dressed. And I didn't look particularly cool. So I uh, went to... So I went to the disco, and each time I went to uh, went up to ask a girl to dance, Swedish girl, pretty Swedish girls, 
And one after another, no. 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 And I was sure they were planted in the disco to just bruise my ego and make me feel miserable. And, you know, I, nobody wanted to dance with me. I hope that tugs a little bit in your heartstring. And each time I'd go back to my hotel room and feel completely dejected. This went on for about three nights, one after another. I was a masochist, or, uh, or I was hoping. <laughs> I was an optimist that turned into a masochist. <laughs> and the, uh, finally, I think it was by the third night, I went, to, um, I went back to my room, and I was carrying around Be Here Now like a Bible in those days. This is like 1973 or so. And, um, and I'd open it up, and if you know Be Here Now, the, the brown pages that are just this, the ultimate Dharma wrap. And I'd open it up, and it would speak to me and remind me of another perspective. And by the, the third night, in getting inspired reading the Dharma, it occurred to me, hold on a moment. I thought of all the people back home who really did love me, who knew me and loved me, my good friends. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. I am taking these five-second interactions with these people that I've never met before, will never meet again, who don't know me at all, and I'm taking their, or my imagined, their assessment of me as being who I really am and forgetting all the people who do know me and really love me. Isn't that interesting? And, uh, wow, I can just see myself in my room with Be Here Now, and all of a sudden something opened up in me. Oh, maybe I'm not a complete loser. Maybe I'm okay, and it just takes a little getting to know me. Um, So I offer that, not taking... First of all, perhaps opening to the fact that you are just projecting and it's not really so. Or if it might be so, who is it that you're, whose assessment are you taking to be the ultimate reality? And when I think about it these days, the people who care about you, who know you, and who you respect are the real important ones. The ones who really know you and love you. If they're your good friends, chances are it's because you respect or admire something about them. And if they're your friends, chances are They've seen something of value in you. 
And for me, um, when I, as I said before on my, my February retreat, I've been teaching with uh, my my buddies um, Guy Armstrong, who took this this uh, year off, Guy and Sally and uh, Sar- Sally, his wife, Sally Armstrong, and Carol Wilson. We've been teaching together for you know, twenty or more years, and those are the people that I respect more than anyone. Well, they're, they're right up there. There's a few more that are on that level, but nobody higher than them. And it's a, it's a thought that I come back to from time to time. Well, if they're my friends and they love me, I must be okay. Think about the people who you really respect, who really care about you, who are really rooting for you, who really love you. Take their assessment for who you are rather than the ships that pass in the night. Something else, a fourth. Trying to be a bit more than who you are. Trying to impress by being a bit more than who you are is not very impressive. But actually, just being completely who you are is very impressive. Just being completely yourself authentically yourself. Anything other than yourself, even if you happen to impress somebody, they're not getting who you are. They're getting some kind of imagined version of who you'd like people to think you are. So they're not getting it anyway. If they do like that, then they're getting a facsimile of you. They're not getting the real thing. But when you are just yourself, when you're around somebody who's just themselves, it's very refreshing because then it allows you to be who you are. And I want to share with you, I was thinking about this quote, this beautiful uh, line from the introduction of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind um, by Suzuki Roshi. And this was written by one of his students who says... uh, The quality of his life, uh, the qualities of his life are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, simplicity, humility, serenity. Whoops, I just lost it. Uh Uh-oh. What did I just do here? Ah, there it is. Humility, serenity, joyousness, Uncanny perspicacity. But in the end, it is not the extraordinariness of the teacher. Whoops. It's not the extraordinariness of the teacher which perplexes, intrigues, and deepens the student. It is the teacher's utter ordinariness. Because he is just himself, he is a mirror for his students. 
In his presence, we see our original face. And the extraordinariness we see is only our own true nature. So trying to be anybody else, you miss the mark. Being just who you are, you allow others to be just who they are. And when you can do that, when you can let go of trying to be more than you are, and you see, you know, I'm okay. Then you don't have to be completely preoccupied in what others think. You can then actually start to notice who's out there. And that was the great gift in that experiment that I did for that week, which went on for 46 years, that all of a sudden, instead of having my focus on me, I started realizing, oh, gosh, what if I could be interested in these people? Because when I stopped taking it on me, it's like, oh, who's out there anyway? Oh, here's Billy. Oh, what's that human being like? And lo and behold, when I started being interested in other people, and even just asking questions and finding out who they were, and being interested in them, they'd say, oh, you're so much fun to talk to. You know? <laughs> because then they have a chance to talk about their favorite subject. You know? But r- truly, you have to be genuinely interested. But in that, it's like the uh, famous Dogen um, teaching that I've mentioned here before. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be intimate with all things. To study Buddhism is to study the self. This is the mind-body process with which you explore the human experience. To study the self is to forget the self. That is, you're not preoccupied with this small self. You see that you're not who you thought you were. And you can forget the self. You can forget the small self preoccupation. And when you forget that preoccupation, when you forget the self, you can then be intimate with all things. So everybody wins in your not being preoccupied, dwelling How am I coming off? What do they think of me? And in that, the more you can learn to just embody, even if it's at the beginning just pretending, the more you can trust that life will use you just the way it's supposed to, that life will use you well. If you can just get out of the way or not believe your thoughts. And then you become a vehicle for that naturalness. And that helps awaken everybody around you. So it's not that, am I good enough or not good enough? You are a unique expression of life that's never been here before. Mm. And the love and awareness that shines through you 
It doesn't even belong to you. It's both yours and it's not yours. You can celebrate its unique expression and see something else is shining through, the shining through of the divine, as Ajahn Sumedho says. So before we, we can open it up for a few moments, I'd just like to, uh, you to, to reflect for a few moments. Just go inside, if you will. And just reflect maybe in some circumstance where you might have your radar out a little bit more for how people, how you might project people are assessing you. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's around people who you want to get to know. Or maybe it's around um, a new situation. And just envision that if you're coming from a good place with integrity and a good heart, that just being who you are is enough. Just imagine that. And whatever tapes might come up or projections that you imagine, whether or not they're real, that you're not run by them, that you can be just who you are. And imagine being interested enough in the others so that you're not preoccupied with yourself and just coming from a place of goodwill. And imagine what it would be like to not care, that is, to just know that you're okay and that's enough. And if you can imagine it, just feel in your body what it might be like and in your mind and in your heart. And if it seems like a good place to become more and more familiar with, you might try that experiment this week just for the fun of it. So, we don't have much time, maybe time for one or one question or so. If anything has come up that you want to bring up before we end. We'll end with a loving kindness in just a moment.
Ja, I, I just wanted to um, offer something that I had heard in kind of group settings or work or situations, the, the advice to speak from the heart mm. and to not rehearse. Mm-hmm. And I just am known so many times when I'm in a circle and everyone's sharing and I'm kind of in the middle or towards the end and I didn't hear anything anyone else was saying because I was preparing this wonderful, beautiful, wise mm-hmm. thing that I was going to say. And when I was when I was given the the instruction, don't rehearse and just speak from the heart. Mm-hmm. It was so much more wise because it was it was coming from yeah. And maybe it maybe wasn't as eloquent, from... but it was just what needed to be said. Yeah. And it was so it resonated with what everyone else had said, and I actually got to listen. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to offer that for folks. Beautiful. Yeah. When you speak from your heart instead of your head, something gets transmitted. Yeah, those are the, the, the council um, guidelines. Speak from the heart, listen from the heart, don't rehearse, and be lean. That is, be economical. <clears throat> because actually, when you are economical, then each word counts more. <clears throat> so, um, thank you. Any other last comment? Okay, so let's close with a brief loving kindness. And I would encourage you, just as an experiment, I mean, and you, this, this, might, this talk might have been kind of um, superfluous for where you're at, and probably much of the time you are just yourself. Certainly around your friends, your, is probably the time that you're most yourself. And that's probably why they're f- your friends, because you're not trying to be anybody else, and you're just completely accepting each other just for where you are. Just imagine everybody is your friend. Uh, but those times that you're a little bit more self-conscious, just experiment with this and see. And I'd be very... Uh, interested and happy to hear any um, any results of your experiment. There's no failing this experiment, by the way. Just try. Okay, so just going inside and getting in touch with your good-heartedness, with the place in you that would bring you to a Thursday evening to share the quiet and share the Dharma together. It's good. Don't miss it. And just wish yourself well. May I stay connected to all the goodness inside me and share my love well. May I see who I really am And then to extend to all beings, may all feel their own goodness, share their love, and wake up to who they really are. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings know the highest happiness and peace.
So, thank you very much. <clears throat> Have a great week. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.